Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Second Kings, and this will actually be, God willing, the end of Second Kings, and the first, the first class of Ezra. We'll go Ezra, Nehemiah, and then we'll have to reevaluate where we go because that kind of brings us to the end of the chronological line. Of course, we began in Genesis and covered the events of, of Genesis up through Exodus, and of course. Um, in, after God saves his people from Egypt, leads them into the promised land, there's the unfaithfulness of that generation. They perish in the wilderness. Of course, Moses himself falls into a sin, um, striking the rock rather than speaking to it as the Lord had commanded. So he's precluded from entering the promised land. That means they need a new leader who will take them in. That's Joshua, who shares the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and just as Joshua leads them into the promised land of Canaan. Our Lord Jesus is leading us into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see that typology. After the conquests of Joshua and everything is kind of established, already we see that there's cracks in that foundation because they don't get rid of all the pagan uh, paganisms and pagans that uh, they're, they're to cleanse the land from. So that leads the, that leaves the seeds of destruction. Well, the judges then go on, and then we get to the age and era of the kings. And that's what we've been through, of course. In the United Kingdom, we have the three kings, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom divides. And that's where we've been in for a long time, this division between the north and the south. We saw the northern kingdom get put away in 722. They're swallowed up by Assyria, never to return. The southern kingdom of Judah remains up until the present, but things aren't looking good, are they? We see two of the great reformers, Hezekiah and Josiah. We reflect on how they are positive types of Christ, the true king, the true anointed one. All the wicked kings are types of the antichrist, uh, anti-anointed ones, contrary to God, contrary to how he would lead and rule his people. Despite these good kings, the sins of, of Israel slash Judah, Judah in particular in view here, are so great, such a great, uh, thorough, manifest violation of the covenant that God finally gives them over to the terms of the covenant. This is fine. You'll be swallowed up by Babylon. And so that's what we're going to see. What we're going to see is that God graciously um, sustains the faith of a small remnant and graciously sustains that line that we've been tracking all the way from Genesis through all of this history and that line which will finally culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so that gives us a sense for where we're at. We're right at um, this swallowing up of Judah by Babylon. And then as we jump over to Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll talk about um, the, the decades of history that we jump there in order to pick back up in um, this post-exilic era, after the exile, that era. Let's begin today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
So 2 Kings chapter 25, and you can see by the heading, this is the fall and captivity of Judah. We have seen a number of not good kings, um, the last of which, of course, was Zedekiah. We covered that uh, last week. So into chapter 5, verse 21, and in the ninth year of his reign, again, this is Zedekiah, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so that the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. All right, so obviously... Um, it's not the kind of warfare I remember. I remember seeing this on TV and what an impact it made when the uh, when the Gulf Wars first began. Do you remember how on the news it was happening? The attacks were happening at night, and you just saw the laser flashes of the missiles taking off and whatever else the weaponry was. I can't remember if Baghdad fell in a day or two days. I don't know, but it was like that. It was just like nothing. Um, even though Babylon is this world superpower, it, this takes years, really. This, these sieges take months and years and these battles, and they're not these clean, tight, neat things. Sometimes the, the battle, the main battle is delayed, and then there's skirmishes and so on and so forth. So it really behooves us in our minds to kind of slow down and realize, um, how this thing happens in processes, stages, takes a lot of time. Look at your study note on verse 2, and in reference to the language of besieged, a decade after the first capture of the city. You know, if our, if our city had been captured and then we were, we were being besieged again, I mean, you can get the sense in which this feels kind of like an ongoing threat, an ongoing war. And then here is going to be sort of the definitive end of that. So a decade after the first capture of the city, the anger of the Lord burst upon Jerusalem and Judah with unrestrained vehemence. The prophet Jeremiah urged the king to keep his solemn pledge of allegiance to the Babylonian overlord. However, weak-willed Zedekiah yielded to a pressure group in the city that advocated rebellion. The anticipated help from Egypt proved a delusion. Of course, there's deep irony there. We've commented on that. They came from Egypt. Then they were trusting in Egypt. Egypt betrayed them. Nebuchadnezzar's patience was at an end. He directed the siege of Jerusalem from his headquarters at Riblah. Okay, so again, um, verse 2. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So this is the cruel nature of ancient warfare. It's attrition. It's starving people out. Verse 4, Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho 
and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. Hard to imagine a, a worse thing to suffer, um, but there are things worse than death, and I think Zedekiah suffers those. Not that we're to have a whole ton of sympathy for him. Um, he is an unfaithful king. He disobeyed the prophet Jeremiah. He sort of got what he deserved. I mean, despite God pleading, don't do this, through the prophet, he continued on, and this is the, this is the outcome of his sin. Okay, verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month. Uh, I mean, just look at the detail. We're hearing all of these days and months. This is actual history. This isn't a myth. That's really what's beyond all of this, you know, or behind all of this, I should say. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. I don't know. I'm going to struggle with this one. Too many vowels. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So, interesting, I mean, just put your finger there in the text. Interesting, the judgment upon um, the people of God for violation of the covenant is fire. It's fire. You can see here in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, you can see a kind of type and figure of the end of the world and the destruction of, of the world that comes by fire. You kind of see a microcosm there. Um, this destruction of the temple and burning of the temple, of course, we're going to see the temple rebuilt. That temple, the second temple, is then destroyed again in 70 AD, and our Lord himself points to the destruction of that temple as well as being a kind of image and foreshadowing of the destruction of the world. And so there are these eschatological themes wrapped up, and lo and behold, of course, when we get to Revelation, where it's telling us about the end of these things, it's using this kind of framework. You have Babylon recur, you have uh, destruction by fire recur, um, you have violence in respect to the temple, if you recall, somewhere around chapter 11 of Revelation. So you, these themes repeat, that's the point. And so what you're seeing here is sort of the backdrop for the New Testament reading and understanding of these things. And of course, I've labored and belabored the point, hopefully, that when the figure of the Antichrist shows up and the Antichrist show up in the New Testament, you think to yourself, where was this in the Old Testament? Uh, the answer is all throughout the era of the kings. The kings are the anointed ones, the messiahs, the Christ. And so you have true Christ and antichrist. You have a type of, of positive type of Christ and an antithesis, an antitype in the contrasting sense of uh, Christ. Okay, so um, the city is burned, the temple is burned. This, I mean, this all takes us back to Solomon, of course, who made the temple, who made the king's house. All of it's burned. Verse 10. And all the army of the Chaldeans, obviously these are allied with Babylon, um, who were the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. 
and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude. There's that name again. Nebuzaradan. I like it. The captain of the guard carried into exile. Yeah, so he basically, you know, enslaves them, hauls them off. That's what it means to be carried into exile. Uh, look at the study note down at uh, chapter 25, verses 8 through 9. In the year 587 B.C., a month after, quote, a breach was made in the city, end quote, and that's from verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar's general, the guy whose name I can't pronounce, carried out his orders to reduce to rubble the temple, the walls, and the other structures of the city. These actions made the city indefensible, indefensible, incapable of rebelling again. Okay, verse 12, but the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So basically, everyone's taken off, but it's not left completely uninhabited. Verse 13, we learn more of the details here. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. Now, interesting, interesting. You know, what are our emotions reading this? In, in one sense, there's a kind of sadness, and yet, as Ezekiel makes clear, God had departed from the temple. In Ezekiel's visions, he sees God come in the chariots, the four living creatures, the, his chariot, and going up out of the temple. So, in one sense, it's a, it's a kind of sadness, but, but not for God, because God's already left. He, he's already, you know, hey, this was for the purposes of the covenant, the covenant which they broke and broke and broke and broke again. I'm done with it. I could care less, you know, and that's... But who do we feel bad for? I mean, we feel bad that at the rebellious nature of humanity and that rebellious nature in our own hearts. That's what's brought this about. That's what's caused God to leave his temple, to allow his people to be taken captive. And isn't it interesting how, you know, again, you have this inclusio theme from slavery. He set them free and now into, into a kind of slavery, into a kind of exile they go. They're captives being led against their will. And the Babylonians, of course, were known to be very cruel. There's reference to them leading the people away by with fish hooks through their noses, this kind of thing. So there's, a, there's definitely a kind of humiliation aspect going on here too. But special focus, special emphasis on the temple because this is a kind of... Um, it's interesting because as this temple is destroyed, it's rebuilt again. And so the temple, this temple kind of has a death and resurrection. Isn't that interesting? Now the second temple has a death and it's broken down. Does it have a resurrection? Nope, it's still laying a pile over there. What does have a resurrection? The body of Jesus, the new temple. And remember how, how our Lord emphasizes that. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And they all scoffed at him, you know, because it had taken so long. Um, but he was referring to the temple of his body. 
And so Christ's body becomes the new temple. little piece of continuity from our first class that we had today when I was highlighting the centrality of the new covenant, the body and blood of Christ, the new covenant in his cup. Well, by partaking of that body and blood, we are partaking of the, the new temple, the resurrected temple. Raise it up in three days, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. What was he talking about? His body. What does he say? Take, eat, take, drink. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you. By partaking of the new covenant in his cup, we are partaking of the true living temple. So we see this kind of temple typology where the first temple destroyed, then resurrected. His, uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah will see that. Um, destroyed again, not to be resurrected. Only the resurrected body of Christ, the true temple. And of course, Revelation points this out. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no temple. For the Lamb is their temple, is really the, the essence of theology. But the Father and the Son together form. There is, no, there is no temple as such. I mean, if anything, you could kind of make the argument that we are the temple um, of God. He indwells us. Okay, well, that's why we're sort of loitering on this point. It's a kind of... A kind of image of the crucifixion, a stripping and a, and a killing. Um, but again, um, I think maybe we've, we've covered the whole gambit of emotions here as best we can in short time. So the pillars of bronze and the uh, bronze seat, these are all broken into pieces and, carry, and the bronze is carried away to Babylon. Verse 14, and they took away the pots and the shovels and all the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire uh, pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. We remember all this detailed description from earlier. It is all hauled away. So, really, in the tearing down of the walls and the tearing down of the temple, I mean, this, there's a finality to this. There's a finality to this. You're not, you're not merely conquering and leaving the infrastructure. You're taking it all out. As the walls were destroyed, as the Stano pointed out, so that it couldn't defend itself again. Temples being destroyed so that the, the religion of the people is being broken. Um, interesting, interesting, of course, the ancient world views it as local deities and local gods, so they're perceiving this as a destruction of Yahweh. Of course, the joke's going to be on them, as we'll see, um, but that's, that's what's in view here. Um, the, the temple of Yahweh is being broken down to serve their god. It won't be but a few decades, and Yahweh enacts vengeance upon Babylon for this, and um, that, with the Persians. So we'll get into that history a little bit. But it, 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 becomes, it becomes 
entirely evident throughout this process that God is the God of the nations, the God of the world. It's an obvious point to us, but not so obvious. In fact, quite contrary to the worldview of the, of the ancients. All right, verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And what was it again? Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Yeah, here you have a kind of decapitation take place. The key leaders are killed and the rest is just led into exile. Interestingly, in verse 18, this Sariah figure is the grandfather or great-grandfather of Ezra. So there's a little detail. You can kind of see the generational gap there too then come as we move into Ezra. Okay, so going into verse 22, And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor. If you drop to the study note, um, this Gedaliah figure, name was not found on a Judean administrative seal. Judah now was reduced to a Babylonian province. Ahikam rescued, or Ahikam, I don't know how you pronounce it, re rescued Jeremiah from mob violence when the prophet urged submission to the Babylonians, Jeremiah 26, 24. No doubt Nebuchadnezzar entrusted the son with the governorship, hoping that he too would advocate non-resistance. And if you look at Jeremiah chapters 40 and 41, you can see a more complete account of Gedaliah's ill-fated administration. All right, there's some other details, but at least that gives you um, the main sense for who this Gedalia figure is, Ahikam, Ahikam, whatever, and uh, Jeremiah in the backdrop here as well. Okay, verse 23, Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedalia governor, they came with their men to Gedalia at Mizpah, namely Ishmael the son of Nathaniah and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, Machathite. 
If you look at the study note on verse 23, um, we see here references to captains. These can describe administrators or military men. We don't really have much, um, you know, if you go down to the study note on 24, we're, you know, you've got these officials, so we don't know much, at least from the text itself, about these uh, different men or what their, what their exact importance is. But carrying on to verse 24, And Gedalia swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces, arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. All right, verse 27. And in the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, uh, aptly named guy, finally one I can pronounce, in the year, um, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, so, yeah, 37th year of exile. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Okay, well, that's an interesting way to end it. There's, there's sort of this glimmer of hope and this sort of sense in which they go from conquered people bottom of the barrel to accepted at the king of Babylon's table, indeed um, put above the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So this kind of favor that arises, you know, I don't want to make too much of this, but it kind of, it kind of hints at a, at a Joseph. It hints at a sense of, remember how, how Joseph is raised up in the eye of the pharaohs, and here you have uh, Jehoiakim. I mean, in both instances, you see God's grace, God's provision, um, his providence, the sense that even this, all of this is according to God's plan. Evil is allowed to operate only within his strictures and the strictures he sets in order for his good purposes to be fulfilled. He still is going to bless his people despite their mass unfaithfulness, despite their need for this temporal discipline. He still is going to remain faithful to them and keep his promise that through this line, through this people, will come the Messiah, the Christ. And so you see this sort of, I think, again, don't make too much of it, but you see this sort of hint or allusion to this, as Joseph in Egypt, so Jehoiakim in Babylon, there's hope. There's hope that they're going to be released from this exile and return uh, to the promised land. All right, well, obviously we could 
we could go into a little more depth and detail there if we wanted. I'm leaving a lot of things uncovered, but that's kind of the nature of this study. This isn't really our deep dive study where we go try to fetch as much information as we can about every syllable. We're moving on. So that's the end of, that's the end of Second Kings. Who doubted that we'd make it? <laughs> Who doubted that? Here we, here we are. We did it. We, we made great time. Have I ever covered a chapter that fast? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right, well, First and Second Kings, of course, properly speaking, one book. This whole business from Saul all the way down, of course, not a terrible amount of detail between Saul and David. If you want all that, you're in the books of Samuel. But this is the kings. This is the division. This takes us to really a, uh, a major, major chronological reference point. The north is gone. The south is in exile. It looks bleak. And really everything begun all the way back in Exodus that we've studied all through this however many months, maybe years, I can't remember, uh, up until this point, it's finally come to a kind of end. A kind of end. Okay, please, I saw a comment. Uh, I, comment. I was going to ask, First and Second Kings, isn't the parallel of that First and Second Chronicles? And, yes. And if, if so, what are the differences? Is it, uh, how do we benefit by reading those two I'm assuming a homework assignment on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's there's supplementary one to the other, as I think as Vicar and I were just very casually pointing out. Um, Chronicles seems to take a more negative view, a more critical view of things, at least in the reference points that have sort of come up in this class and our reading. I don't know if that's. I mean, to tell you the truth, Barry, I don't know, I don't honestly know First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles well enough to give you a really profound answer here. You know, it's not quite like, hey, ask me the difference between Matthew and John, and I could really talk in some depth and detail about the different theological views and nuances. I'm just not equipped to do that um, with those texts. Yeah. Um, in passing, since it is just you know in your Lutheran study Bible, you can flip, you can flip one page over, and then you're at um, page six hundred twenty-eight. You're looking at um, you're looking at the introduction in the Lutheran study Bible to First and Second Chronicles, and if you just glance up at the timeline, um, you know it's interesting here because you have you have um, the second temple completed in 516. So this just helps kind of connect the dots, this, this timeline. So um, 587 is what we read in the Lutheran Study Bible. Sometimes 586 is noted, whatever. I don't really care. 587 is probably more accurate. But that's when the temple's destroyed. That's when the exile proper is dated. And then you can see here how um, 70 years later, the second temple is completed. Okay, the walls of Jerusalem are restored some years after that, 445 BC. First and Second Chronicles is written, it is thought, somewhere around 430 BC. That's why they're giving us this timeline, even though, properly speaking, First and Second Chronicles cover the same period of time as First and Second Kings. They're giving you this timeline so you can see about it's written in retrospect, you know. And then um 
I just think this is fun to see because it takes you into the intertestamental period. If you look on that same timeline, you see dated 334 to 323 BC, conquests of Alexander the Great, and then 167, the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt becomes connected with Hanukkah. And of course, um, then our Lord coming somewhere around the time of zero <laughs> or three or whatever the case may be. Uh, but you see how the, you see just how we're trucking along toward that fulfillment of God's promise made all the way back in Genesis to Adam and Eve or in the presence of Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So God is patient. But he always fulfills his promises. If we jump to the very end of Second Chronicles, I'll have a page number for you here in just a minute. We can do just a little compare contrast. Um, page seven hundred eighteen in your Lutheran Study Bible. This is Second Chronicles, um, chapter thirty-six, verse sixteen. You can see anyway just how this comes to an end. And how this author um, provides hope at the end of his text. It's a rather bleak history, but both authors have a way of providing hope and a sort of um, foreshadowing of God's gracious provision to come. So if you look at, um, if you look at page 718, just look at how Jerusalem is captured and burned in verse 17. Let's just pick up there. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and of course we know him from Isaiah. We're, we're going to talk more about Cyrus here in a minute. But we know him from Isaiah. Um, Cyrus, almost certainly an unbeliever, this unbeliever king. This is how wild God is. You know, if, he, if God will speak through the mouth of a donkey, God will save his people through a pagan king. And in fact, even a pa this pagan king, Cyrus, becomes a type of Christ who, um, yeah, who, who ushers in the age of the temple. It's just fascinating kind of figure. But this Cyrus, king of Persia, becomes a, a type of the Messiah, even though he himself personally is an unbeliever. Just remarkable. So in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Notice how it's not the God of nations or the God of Israel or the God of that one, partic uh, that one particular, I guess it is the, king of, uh, the God of nations, I misspoke there, but it's the God of heaven. So this is an acknowledgement on the part of Cyrus that even though he might not personally believe, again, this is a really interesting question and an odd kind of thing to investigate, but he acknowledges that the God of Israel is the God of heaven, the God of all. So the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I mean, this is a Gentile king. This is just crazy. Like, so unlikely. This in and of itself is a complete... Like, if you were alive at this time, you would have no choice but to believe in God. He converts this king of the Persians into bringing you back and building a temple for you? Why does that make any sense? I mean, you would have no choice but to just simply believe that this was the hand of God. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Okay, so you can see how, how the chronicler ends it in, in contrast to the, um, the author of 2 Kings. I, the hope here, in, I mean, you can tell that the, the language is more blunt in terms of the, the capture and burning of Jerusalem. Um, but the hope is, is that much stronger, too, in that he literally includes the proclamation of Cyrus, which is the end of the exile proper. So. Anyway, Barry, that's the best I'm going to be able to do for you in looking at those two. Okay, any thoughts you have, or should we uh, jump into the preliminary material on Ezra? All right, let's do that. So here, um, hopefully you have a Lutheran study Bible. If you don't, hopefully you can look on. I don't know that we have any study Bibles around. I don't think we do. Because um, we're just going to spend a little bit of time here. Up top at the timeline, of course, you can see 587. The Jerusalem temple is destroyed. Um, there, Cyrus decrees that exiles may return to Judah. That's what we just looked at in Second Chronicles. And that um, takes place at 587. 38. So what is that? 49 years? Does that seem to be right? 49 years? And then in 537, the altar is rebuilt in Jerusalem. So that's done in rather, rather short time span. But then how long does it take to make the second temple? Quite a bit more time. Looks like another 21 years, if my math is correct. Uh, the second temple is completed. And then Ezra arrives in Jerusalem well after the second temple is completed in 458 B.C. 
Now, the author of the text is thought to be Ezra the scribe, of course. Um, there's a certain section where the pronouns are first person, so I, and definitively Ezra. There's other sections that some people posit it might, may have been another, uh, another author or not. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment, but not in too much detail, because I find those these kinds of questions ultimately fairly fruitless. Um, we think that it was written uh, somewhere around 440 BC. So if you kind of stick that up in the timeline, that's after Ezra has arrived in Jerusalem by approximately 18 years. And um, let's just hear what Luther has to say on this text. The word of God has this character that it is made known and comes when man is most desperate over everything. When he thinks that nothing is less likely to happen than what the word of God says most certainly will happen. That's kind of what I was talking about. He does such a better job than I of communicating how stunning, shocking, out of this world it would have been that Cyrus, king of Persia, all of a sudden wants to help and aid God's people, even while remaining not a believer himself. That's just so stunning. And from the least likely source at the least likely time. That's what Luther, I think, is getting at here. He continues, you see, it does not come to the lazy or the pleasure seekers. To them it is a source of laughter. Rather, it comes to the weak and the oppressed, to those in need. These also finally receive it in such a way that all human boasting vanishes and nothing is credited to our own strength and energies, but all to God alone. You see, here the rebuilding of the temple is ordered against very powerful, very bitter foes. The command is given, I say, to a weak people, few in number, a people against whom stand powerful princes and powerful nations, which lived round about and daily threatened imminent destruction, as one may see in Ezra. For the violence of the neighboring peoples was such that the Jews were forced to build with one hand and to fight with the other to ward off the hostile nations. That sounds to me like about what it is to be a Christian or a pastor in our own day and age, trying to build with one hand and fight with the other, <laughs> keep the paganism away while trying to rebuild the church of God in this place. It's kind of beautiful poetic image there. Luther continues, Yet against all these fierce and powerful foes, this one weak prophet here dares to rise up and prophesy about rebuilding the temple. So he orders this handful of people who had just recently been snatched from a most burdensome captivity to stand up against a mad and inflated king who didn't want them to rebuild the temple. Yet it is the word of God which commands such things, and to it we must listen, even though the whole world resists it, as the Jews also did listen. 
You see, when we thus attribute to God the glory of truth, then it happens that everything which first was opposed to us now is compelled to promote and help us in our plans. This is what happened here, where all the very heavy burdens and bitter hindrances were changed into peaceful allies. After all, as the account shows, the king ordered the princes to help the people, whereas before that they had been ordered to resist and oppose them. So what appeared impossible earlier became very easy because of God's plan. Obviously, this is the way divine mercy, working wonderfully, turns all things into good for those who believe. Judgment is turned into salvation for them, sin into righteousness, etc., enemies to friends and subjects. For God, the Almighty, holds all things in his hand. The whole world, kings and princes too, must obey him. I, what a beautiful and comforting message, and one that we need to hear and probably read and reread, that what's going on in the news isn't as, isn't as godless as it might appear, at least in the sense that it strikes us so often as if, well, where is God? God's just washed his hands of the whole thing, and it's hell in a handbasket, and it's chaos. Um, that's not in fact true. It's not in fact accurate. God allows evil only insofar as it serves his good purposes. And he is even now working all things for the good of those who love him. And we cling to these principles, these promises. We cling to the fact that God is in control. He's the king of all things. He doesn't care any less today than he's cared in the past. He isn't any less involved today as he was in the time of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, he is building up his new temple, the body of Christ, in our midst. As we, again, as we partake of the body of Christ, so we become the body of Christ. As we enter and join the holy temple of his body, we become living stones of that body. It's all connected. So the temple is being built up all around us as the New Testament scriptures declare. All right, well, let's point out a few uh, challenges before we jump into the text. Well, if we have any time to jump into the text. Um, what are the challenges? I only want to point out a couple of these in the study Bible. Okay, so the first is the relationship to Chronicles, Nehemiah, and Esther. Here the study Bible says, From the Hebrew Bible, it is clear that Ezra and Nehemiah were combined as one scroll and continuous work even though they must originally have been separate compositions. You can see that, for example, in Nehemiah 1.1. So, separate compositions, but included as one book. That's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? It's a little bit like how... Um, yeah, I think, I think Bilbo, isn't he the author of The Hobbit? What we call The Hobbit. It goes under another name. And then... Frodo adds on the story of the Lord of the Rings. So you have two different authors writing two different, and yet it sort of is one composite, one overarching story. So if you'll pardon the analogy, especially if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, well, you should be, but um, if you're not, pardon the analogy. Yeah, but the point is, okay, so two separate authors working on one composite work. Make sense? Okay. 
So that's kind of what we've got here.、Um, let's just pick up where we left off in that little paragraph. The style of these books is likewise similar to that of Chronicles and Esther, books written during the same era. Similarities in style have prompted some scholars to conclude that one author or one editor, for example, the chronicler, whoever that was,、um, wrote or compiled these works. And this is what I was referring to just a moment ago. At least a portion of Ezra, chapter seven, verse twenty-seven through chapter nine, verse fifteen, was clearly written by Ezra himself, reporting in the first person. I. Okay, what's another difficulty? The end of Ezra. The book ends abruptly. However, the report of Ezra's career does not end here. He reappears on the scene twelve years later and makes a positive contribution to the spiritual upbuilding of the post-exilic community. Nehemiah chapters seven through ten. There is no information as to what he did in the meantime. Do you think he went on a sabbatical? Maybe, twelve years. Doubtful. He may have been recalled to the Persian court after his commission in Judah expired. <laughs> okay. Well, the, I don't know. This is fun. Why not? Imperial Aramaic. This is a little in the weeds, but it's. I think it's still kind of interesting. The correspondence and account in Ezra chapter four, verse seven,、um, through chapter six, verse eighteen, and then again, chapter seven, twelve through twenty-eight, is written entirely in Aramaic. Okay, so this is one example you have of the Old Testament, where the Old Testament isn't entirely the Hebrew Scriptures. There are also parts that are written in Aramaic. All right, here's one of those parts, or rather, these two sections. Okay. So, and this was, of course, the official language of the Persian Empire. The writer had access to either an official archive or a collection of such documents. Aramaic is a northwest Semitic language originally spoken in Syria or Aram, a kingdom north of Israel that was annexed by the Assyrians in the eighth century BC. Biblical Hebrew is a close cousin to Imperial Aramaic, which was also used by the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, and subsequently adopted by the Persians. Aramaic largely replaced Hebrew in Judea and Galilee. Jesus and the apostles spoke Aramaic. Aha! So that's where it came from. And there is a great body of early Christian literature in Syriac. A dialect, a dialect of Aramaic that has survived to modern times in the liturgy of a small number of Syriac Christians living in Lebanon, Iraq, and other places. All right, I don't know. Kind of fascinating little details there on the language and how it is that Jesus and his and his apostles came to speak Aramaic. Of course, Jesus would have known Hebrew, Aramaic,、uh, Greek, Koine Greek. And probably good portions of Latin as well. Anything else, Vicar? Is that a fair representation? At least those. As a true human being, as God, <laughs> as true God, He's capable of speaking any language He wants. Right. Oh, what else? 
I don't know. Here's a little fascinating note. The additions to Ezra on the apocryphal additions to Ezra. Remember when we were doing the apocrypha and we got bored somewhere along the line and stopped? Um, yeah, so, so you've noticed, you noticed the books of Esdras in there. So on the apocryphal additions to Ezra known as the books of Esdras, See Luther's comments on page 1563 if you want. So, okay, so there were certain additions to this text, apocryphal additions, that have then been uh, kept under that label of books of Esdras in the Apocrypha. Study Bible says, as you read Ezra, consider how the Lord is at work now in the lives of world leaders in order to bring about good for his people. As Luther notes above, when things seem their worst and everything opposes God's people, we're getting there, aren't we? There God is at work to dramatically change matters. Therefore, like Ezra and his contemporaries, take confidence in God's promises and their fulfillment for your sake. All right, there's the introduction. Any thoughts, questions, concerns you have? Yeah. I just wanted to point out that while we're on the subject of language, um, it's the case that standard biblical Hebrew also underwent revisions as well. And we, the reason we know this is because of the ancient um, like hymns, for example, like the Song of Deborah, the Song of Moses, these have an ar like archaic Hebrew forms, mm. which they retained because it's it, it's kind of like um, we retain the these and thous and stuff like in the Lord's Prayer, for example. Or like how our hymns, even though it's in yeah. English, you're going, what does this mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> right. right. So, um, yeah, the Hebrew language did undergo some some revisions like that as they were you know, as it, it was as it was passed down through the ages. So. Well, it only makes sense because if you have Moses writing, and I, you bear with me, approximately 1500 BC, that's a heck of a lot of years. Of course, you're going to have some linguistic shift take place during that amount of time. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. You remind me that I need to find out what the seminary is teaching in regard to all the. All the, the all the textual theories, of the Masoretic text and all that. See if that's updated since I was last in seminary. <laughs> but that's for another time. Put everybody right into nap mode if we go into the <laughs> that discussion. <laughs> okay, any other... Any, I, we're right at time. I don't see... I don't really see wisdom in jumping into the text. Um, so let's just save the text for uh, next week. And if you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to entertain those. But otherwise, the Lord be with you. Thank you.